As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to another Americans in Action episode of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me today is a man who is not selected in the Charlotte expansion draft. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, are you hurt you weren't picked? Are you excited to get back to your parent club who made you available in the first place? <laughs> Taylor, I am I'm thrilled, honestly, to not have been selected. Just think about how weird that would be, right? <laughs> I know that drafts are an inherently American sports kind of thing, but every time the expansion draft comes up, I reminded of how weird that is in MLS and how weird it is for a lot of other sports. The, the potential of just being plucked from the city that you live in, from your house, like from all of yeah. these things to then have to move across. It's just bizarre to me. So would playing for Charlotte FC be the worst thing? I, absolutely not. I'm sure there'd be a lot of great parts there. But man, in this fictional world, I'm kind of glad to just be able to stay at home where like my family <laughs> and the rest of my stuff is. I mean, that said, with Ryan Bailey moving to Rome, there is a vacancy in the TSS Charlotte office, so maybe we do need to allocate (laughs) you to Charlotte, and then we'll have to fill in the gaps in Phoenix. Okay, I'll make the move, Taylor. We'll get Graham to Phoenix and see how he deals with sunshine (laughs) and not Scottish people. Yeah, I think that'd be kind of fun. I... I think he would be briefly more pleasant and then extremely less pleasant once we got to the like 110 degree days where you can't go outside. Yes. Yep. That sounds. We also don't have munchie boxes here, which I think might be a bit of a snag for him. So who knows? Yeah, that feels to me like if you just went to every fast food restaurant and got one thing and then threw it all into a box. That seems to be what those things are. Uh, But I'm not Scottish, so I can't say for sure. Yeah, that, that feels about right. Arby's, curly fries, a, uh, yeah. and a water burger. There's just all sorts of opportunity. There. I like it. I like it. Well, on today's show, we're going to be discussing the many, many Americans who were in action this past weekend. I'm going to assume not eating those munchie boxes, uh, as well as a few who were not in action. Uh, we're also talking a bit more about the U.S. men's national team. But first, let's stick with that expansion draft for a couple more minutes. Charlotte used five picks. They kept three players, traded for two for a whole bunch, or traded two of the players for a whole bunch of GAM. Uh, and I think, Joe, to your point about it being strange that you can just be plucked from one city and put into another, 
I feel like it would be even weirder to be plucked from one city, put into another, start maybe like doing some research on the city and potential real estate areas, and then suddenly you're now in a different market, <laughs> as was the case for Tristan Blackman, who uh, was taken from LAFC, then traded to Vancouver, and uh, Ismael Tajiri Shradi, selected from NYCFC, and then traded to LAFC. LAFC heavily involved, f- weirdly, for an expansion draft that they were not actually a part of. Yeah, they were they were making big moves as really not the team that everyone was paying attention to. Also, as an aside, how weird for Ismail Tajiri Shradi to have just lifted MLS Cup in mm-hmm. Portland, then I assume going back to New York City, oh, wow. doing some celebration yeah. stuff there, then being picked by Charlotte in the expansion draft a few days, just a few days, literally a few days after lifting that MLS Cup and then being told, yeah, you're going to L.A. Just a, a bizarre like 72, 90, yeah, whatever man. hours. That's, that is bonkers to me. But as far as the expansion draft goes for Charlotte, I, I kind of like the, I kind of like what they did. It's a little bit frustrating. And other folks have All said right. this already. I'm not covering a ton of new ground here. It you are to feels me, like, Okay, okay. <laughs> well, Assume that you are that. to me. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of feel like two of the three best players that Charlotte selected, they just shipped off. And, and there's good reason for that, at least in part. They collect between Blackman and Tajiri Shradi $875,000 in GAM, which helps and I believe completely covers the international roster slot dealing they did. They had to pay about five hundred k in GAM for a couple of slots from Nashville. So they're balancing out their roster and some of the, the roster building mechanisms that they have available to them by getting rid of those guys. But I can't help but feel like Blackman and, and Tajiri Shradi could have been really useful parts of this team. They have MLS experience. They both are are very solid MLS players. Let's not forget that Tristan Blackman was going to be in a U.S. camp in the last year and then was injured, I believe, with a concussion, and so he wasn't able to make it. So he's rated pretty highly by Greg Berhalter and is clearly has been rated highly by Bob Bradley. But if we set those trades aside... Being left with Mackenzie Gaines and Anton Walks and, and Joseph Moore is not the worst situation. Moore is the weirdest pick to me of the five because he's not under contract. And, and we mentioned the Joe Corona-Austin situation, Taylor, tongue-in-cheek, last week when Austin couldn't agree to a contract with Joe Corona after picking him in the expansion draft. And then he went and signed for in-state rivals, the Houston Dynamo. There's a chance that that happens with Mora here because he's not under contract. So that's a bit of a weird situation. But Gaines and Walks are are pretty strong picks. Walks especially. He's a plug-and-play starter. He can play center back, right center back in a back two. He can play right center back in a back three. He has played right back before. I'm not a huge fan of him in that role, but in a pinch, he can do that job. And when we talked about this draft before it happened, Taylor, we highlighted versatility as being this really important trait. And Walks is versatile and has experience in a few different spots. So they made some moves that I, that I do genuinely like in the expansion draft. Walks specifically gains as kind of a flyer pick um, as a winger for uh, for Ramirez here in Charlotte. They made a few moves since then, signing Harrison Offal in free agency, Jordi Reyna in free agency. Just today, as we're recording on Tuesday, they signed Alan Franco, not Atlanta United center back Alan Franco, but Ecuadorian international Alan Franco from Atletico Mineiro in Brazil on loan with an option to buy. He's worked with Miguel and Angel Ramirez in the past, as well as a couple other folks on their roster have too. So I, I like some of what uh, some of what Charlotte's doing. I question some of their moves as well, but I think that's kind of how it goes in any expansion roster building process. I've got a weird concern for them, but first I have a question for you, Joe. Uh, in the time that you have been paying attention to Major League Soccer, covering it in depth, which expansion team or teams have had the best inaugural season? It's got to be Atlanta, LAFC. Yeah. They've got to be on top there, right? In the mix of really high-end talent, a couple of flyers as well, building some solid spots within MLS. Those teams are, are certainly the models. 
So that's kind of what I assumed. I just wanted to make sure that Atlanta was on that list because a, a thing I have seen uh, repeated about Anton Walks is that this is uh, – he's had, what, two different stints in Major League Soccer, uh, both with Atlanta, but the first one was with Atlanta as an expansion team. He's only 24 years old but has that sort of expansion experience. But my concern would be he has expansion experience with a team that sort of hit the ground good. And if you have expansion experience with a team that is not doing that, but is sort of starting very slowly and building their team and figuring things out as they go, to some extent, I wonder how much that experience actually helps versus works against you because he's sitting there thinking, hey, we could be doing this a lot better and being competitive right away. Can you just <laughs> sign Joseph Martinez and Miguel Almiron really, really quickly and then we'll be fine? So right. I maybe that's like going too far with it. But I thought that was an interesting sort of strong point that kept getting mentioned, whereas to me it could be a potential negative. No, it could be a double-edged sword. And to be honest, I do lean more towards the going through an expansion year really being an asset. I lean more towards that cool. side of things. But Taylor, I think I think you're absolutely right there, right? With Anton Walks and with other players on this roster, if this year doesn't go how Charlotte wants it to, and with Walks in particular, he's he's already walked this road before. No no Walks walked, pun intended there, but it just kind of happens. I'm going to roll with it. He's been sure. down that path sure, sure, sure. before, and there could be frustrations that boil to the surface. It's a huge challenge for Miguel Angel Ramirez and for the front office and for this whole club to balance this season and to figure out how to actually do this whole MLS thing. And having all these different perspectives and experiences, it, it doesn't make it easy. This is going to be a real challenge for Charlotte and for Walks and the rest of that roster, too. Well, obviously, they will continue to build that roster. Not a ton of senior players at time of recording. We would expect them to fill that out in time for the season to begin, and we'll talk more about them as they do. For now, one more MLS uh, move to discuss, Joe. Sebastian Legette traded to the New England Revolution, uh, guaranteed of guaranteed offer of 500000 in GAM, 300000 in 2022, 200000 in 2023, and then it possibly moves up to $1.3 million if performance incentives are met. The larger question, money aside, Joe, is where do you think he fits for the Revs? Is this a feel-good reunion with Bruce Arena? Is this a veteran sort of moving to a club because he wasn't necessarily needed at his old club? Or is this him going in and being an immediate role player, an important figure for the Revs, or maybe some combination of the three? I think it is a combination of the three. I have a okay. little bit of trouble imagining Bruce Arena doing feel-good reunions and Bruce <laughs> Arena just giving hugs in general, but I'm sure it's, like, it's possible. Hey, how are you doing? You doing <laughs> yeah. good? All right. All right. We're done with that. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I do think Sebastian and Jet will be an important part of this Revs team going forward. I think it's a good move for the Revs. It's, it's a bit pricey if all those performance incentives are met, and there's been no public reporting about what those are, but I assume there at least some of them are pretty easily attainable given that 500K doesn't feel like a lot for Legette. But I like the move for the Revs at a basic level. I like the move for LA getting Greg Vanny a chance to further sculpt that roster. And I like the move for Legette, who's getting a, a change of scenery leading into a World Cup year, which I think is really important for him. He hasn't been all that good with the national team. He hasn't been all that good with the Galaxy either. I think Bruce Arena brings in a guy like Legette to be a starter, to, to balance the midfield between Matt Polster at the six and Carles Hill at the 10. I think he can he can link and he can do a lot of the ball progression on the dribble if he does get back to more peak Sebastian Legette form, which I think is entirely possible. So I like this move for pretty much every party involved with a slight caveat there, depending on the financial incentives. But I think this is an important move for Legette in particular, gearing up for 2022. If we're talking about like the the biggest moves in your mind so far, is that the biggest Legette to the Revs, or is there another one that looms even larger? 
Legette to the Rebs is probably the biggest. I'm trying to think now. Lewis Morgan moving to the Red Bulls. That was a big chunk of change. Franco Escobar going to LAFC. The move that Charlotte has made probably altogether are the biggest personnel moves. But if we're looking at players only and not coaches, I think Legette's probably at the top of that list, Taylor. All right. Well, we're going to be talking more about off-season moves, mid-season moves as the January window uh, opens up in, I'm checking my notes, uh, January 1st is when the January window opens. Very good. Uh, Very so good. we'll be talking a lot more about transfers. For now, Joe, we did want to talk a little bit more about the U.S. men's national team. We did not do a full in-depth review of the Bosnia-friendly, the win against Bosnia. We did about 15 to 20 minutes of it on yesterday's weekend review show, you and I. And uh, Graham asked us the question in there about like sort of who had had the best year, who stood out to us as having the kind of strongest performances in 2021 from a USMNT perspective. And that led, Joe, to your idea that maybe we should talk a bit more about the U.S. men's national team in terms of what this year has been for them. So let's take a look at 2021 sort of briefly. We're going to do a mini year-end review. Uh, They played, I believe, 22 total games, 17 wins, 2 losses, 3 draws, 46 goals for FIFA ranking of 12. Not a bad year, certainly when you look at where some of those wins were and and the opponents that they were against and the situations. Three big wins against Mexico is none too shabby. Joe, any 2021 stats that jump out to you when it comes to the USMNT? The biggest stat, it's really just a number, is is being second in World Cup qualifying right now, yeah. one point behind Canada. That is the single most important thing about this year. And until November of 2022, it will be the single most important thing about next year. The fact that the U.S. is in position right now for World Cup qualifying ended today, and it doesn't. But if it did end today, the fact that the U.S. would be going to the World Cup is massive. And and Greg Berhalter and this group of players deserve credit for being in that spot, for positioning themselves in a place where they have some level, emphasis on some level of comfort headed into the (laughs) final group of World Cup qualifiers. The challenge there, and Taylor, you, you read off a lot of good numbers, the FIFA rankings and, and the goals for and the, you know, the, the wins, the record number of wins, wins in this calendar year. The challenge is a lot of those wins have not been convincing. And we've talked about that a ton in the past. I remember distinctly you and I recording after the Honduras game where the U.S. do go out and win in World Cup qualifying away to Honduras. But at halftime, we're having real questions about, you know, is Greg Brother even going to be in charge? Not, not... Not real questions about his status and, and his him being employed, but maybe real questions about whether or not he's the right guy to do this job, and, and hints of that had been there earlier on this year. So for me, it is a bit of a mixed bag. Results-wise, you can't ask for a whole lot more than what we've had going on right now. But in terms of some of the, the nitty-gritty tactical stuff and what we're seeing on the field, there are questions there. And I'll gladly shut up about those questions if the U.S. qualify for the World Cup and thrive in the World Cup. But I I think there's still reasons to be curious and a little bit skeptical headed into 2022. All that said, good year results-wise for the U.S. men's national team. Really good year for them in that regard. It was, but Joe, you're absolutely right to kind of spotlight the inconsistency and the, if not up and down performances, then just the sort of flattering to deceive style performances. Because as I mentioned, 46 goals in a year for in what, again, 22 games, that's more than two goals per game. I believe my math is correct there. Uh, (laughs) But then when you go back and look, I mean, we start the year off with a 7-0 win over Trinidad Tobago in a friendly. That's followed by a 4-1 win over Jamaica. I think there's a 6-1 win over Martinique in there, 4-1 to one over Honduras and World Cup qualifying, that one World Cup qualifying, so it does uh, matter quite a bit, 4-0 uh, over Costa Rica and a friendly, these games, those goals start to add up in games that aren't as important, as meaningful, and then you look at the ones that were, be they in the Gold Cup or World Cup qualifying, 
And there are the nil-nils, the one-nils, the kind of tight games that we didn't expect to be tight. So I'm with you, Joe. We need to see maybe more consistency against better quality opponents and maybe scoring a a goal earlier. I would love to see more games in which the U.S. scores in like the 20th minute and then the 70th minute when the opponent is pushing and trying to make something happen. That to me is a 2-0 win with an early goal and then a late goal that you kind of weathered the storm, got the result. We need more of those, Joe. We need more Dos Aceros across the board, not just against Mexico. But we should talk about some more positives from this year. As I said, Graham asked us who we thought had sort of had the the best year, who had sort of improved the most or uh, was sort of just stood out to us for whatever reason. Uh, I talked about Anthony Robinson and Tim Weah. We both agreed on Eunice Musa. Should add, a couple of people on Twitter were uh, aghast to, to learn that we did not mention Miles Robinson, and that is a bit of an, a miss, for me at yeah. least. Uh, yeah, uh, I won't speak for you, but yeah, Miles <laughs> Robinson is probably... Probably number one on the list in terms of a player who is on the fringe at best and now seems to be a locked-in starter uh, for the USMNT in meaningful games. Yeah, he's way up on that list. And this conversation is is timed really well because right now I'm writing a piece about Miles Robinson that should be out in the next couple of days, looking at some of his numbers from MLS and looking at, at maybe what he could do going forward. He's had a great year at club level, dealing with a bunch of turmoil, three different head coaches, two different head coaches last season as well. That's five in the last two years. He's had a ton going on. And yet in the midst of some turmoil with Atlanta United and some some challenging times for the USMNT as a whole, he cemented himself, Taylor, as the starting right center back. Those questions. And I think this is why, at least for me, I didn't even think about mentioning him yesterday is because... The questions yeah. about right center back feel so far in the past. They feel so done. Like, like we've completely wrapped up that conversation. Miles Robinson is the starter in that spot. Is he perfect? No. Does he have deficiencies? Absolutely. But he is the starting right center back. So he's got to be one of the best. He's had one of the best seasons of any USMNT player in that regard. Others that we talked about, Musa, I really do believe is maybe 1B to Miles Robinson's 1A. Getting him fully integrated into the national team program, having him come out and have a number of different key performances in World Cup qualifiers, those are huge. Miles uh, Robinson, Eunice Musa, Walker Zimmerman's another one. Matt Turner I mentioned yesterday, and I stand by that. And Brendan Aronson is another one for me. I think... Some of the productions he some of the production he's had is a bit deceptive, like you know different tap ins that that he he kind of lucks into, although that timing is a skill in and of its own. Some of the production I think is a bit of a mirage, but still to have his energy and his aggressiveness, he really helps set the tone in World Cup qualifying and has done that a handful of different times already this cycle. Aronson coming in and really grabbing one of those winger spots when Christian Pulisic and Giorena have been dealing with injury, both he and Tim Way I think deserve a shout in this category too, Taylor. So we've got like five or six names there. Let me move it to a different style of conversation, Joe, or a different topic of conversation. Who was just your favorite performer for the USMNT this year? Uh, And I want to talk specifically about like for the national team, not necessarily at club level, but just some performances that stood out. I think we both will have a lot to say about Yunus Musa, so I will start us with a different name. I will say that Matthew Hoppy is one that I was not expecting yeah. big things from when he was included in that Gold Cup squad. I wasn't quite sure where he would fit or how he would fit, where he would play. And he was just such a an important part of that team, and he did so many different things in those games, be they like pushing wide or moving central or being like another uh, central attacking midfielder at times, but then sometimes he was a forward. Got into it with Greg Berhalter on occasion, got into it with opponents, but I, I felt like he was one who was just up for it from start to finish, and at the very least, you never doubted his effort, and that is something that we've talked about with a few other players in this pool in previous 
episodes. So for me, Matthew Hoppy was a, a performer that I think I will have fond memories of from his Gold Cup days. I love that, Taylor. That is such a good one. I'm jealous I didn't think of it. One that I think kind of goes hand in hand with Hoppy, at least in terms of entertainment value and, and spectacle, is Kellen Acosta at times during the summer. I'm not going to come on and say that, you know, he was the best player the U.S. has had this year. He's been down more than he's been up recently with the national team. I think that Bosnia performance included. But man, some of his his general poophousery during various key moments for the U.S. men's national team this year, I think, makes him... Uh, it certainly puts him on my list in this category as someone who sparked joy in my USMNT watching experience. <laughs> Tim Weah has got to be another one for me. I know I mentioned him in the last category too, but just the way that he he came on and seized a, a few different moments in World Cup qualifying now is a guy that I feel fully comfortable starting any game for the U.S. men's national team, potentially even over one of the big two in the winger depth chart being Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna. He's been that good dealing with a little injury right now with Leal. Hopefully we'll be back in time for the next round of World Cup qualifiers. But he's another guy in addition to Count Acosta and Matthew Hoppy, if I'm going to steal from you, Taylor, who I think has has earned themselves, has earned himself a spot in this list. All right. Uh, yeah, and then Yunus Musa, just just fun. Just fun to, to so have fun. in the team. Tyler Adams, I think, also sparks that joy from a, I, what I've called him the comfort blanket in the past. We could call him comfort food, too, because he's just calming. He's just soothing. You know what you're going to get, and you can kind of relax knowing that he's in there. I don't have that same level of relaxation about many other players uh, in this pool. And that might be the ones that I'm, I will like remember the fondest from 2021, I think Ricardo Pepe's first goal and sort of what that meant in the moment. Sure. Uh, it was pretty big. I, I'm not like fully down on Ricardo Pepe at this point. I just think from where that goal was and where he was in that moment, we have the kind of same lingering questions about the number nine spot and who should start and what the depth looks like there. So maybe that's why he's a little bit further back than I would have put him a couple months ago. That all begs the question, Joe. As we look towards 2022, who do you think needs to have the best, basically next six to eight months? Who is maybe in the squad, but not in the starting 11 or out of the squad trying to get into it or just trying to get into consideration more than they have been recently? You mentioned that number nine conversation, Pepe and Zardes and Sargent and PFOC yep. and DK. I know that's a, a giant list there, but I really think if one of those guys, even one of them, really bursts forward and, and puts themselves head and shoulders above the rest, that'll be a huge asset for them and, and a huge asset for the USMNT as well. I think that would do wonders for this team. Graham's mentioned it before. This team lacks this goal score. They lack a 15-goal-a-season-at-a-high-level type of goal scorer. And it could be Ricardo Pepe at some point. It could be Josh Sargent a few years from now. I don't think it's going to be him anytime soon. It could be Jossie's artist coming in and doing the things that he needs to do. If I'm putting out a World Cup qualifying lineup tomorrow, Jossie's artist is my starting number nine. And I don't know if some folks out there are going to like that or not. But I, I think he is best suited for that role right now. So one of those nines, Taylor, having a really strong next six to eight months would do wonders for for them and for this program. One other name that really leaps out to me in this regard, Chris Richards. We talked about how Miles Robinson landed that right center back spot. I still think the left center back spot is somewhat up for grabs. Walker Zimmerman has done a great job in that role in a number of different ways, especially defensively. But I, I think there's still room there for someone to come in and snatch that spot, whether that is John Brooks again, whether it's Aaron Long making a really impressive comeback and snagging it, whether it's someone else or whether it's Chris Richards. I think there's room there for someone. And so if someone's going to grab that spot, it, it might be Richards. And he's in a position with Hoffenheim right now to really shine and get more minutes with the USMNT going forward. 
All right, Joe Larry. I like all of those nominees. I had a bunch of number nines, but you sort of succinctly put them all into one group. And we'll talk more about some concerns with that number nine spot as we get into individual performers from this past weekend. Uh, but two names I wanted to mention uh, were Reggie Cannon. We're going to talk about him a little bit later, so we don't need to go too in-depth right now, but just a player that I would have assumed was locked on, locked in to start at that right-back spot when we thought Dest was going to be the left-back. Now Dest can be the right back because of Anthony Robinson's sort of uh, increasingly consistent performances. I'm saying consistent a lot when it comes to this U.S. team, but it fits. Uh, But now Reggie Cannon, maybe not even third choice right back, certainly not first or second. So I think he needs a good season, maybe a move to kind of figure things out and get on the right track. And I would say Gio Reyna needs a few months of not getting hurt and being able to play. We have not seen him in a good long while, so I'm hoping for bigger and better things or maybe just some things at all in 2020. Yeah, that would be incredible, right? Gio Reyna could be this team's X factor if he can really stay healthy and get integrated. So I would, I would love to see that from him as as we push forward into this next calendar year. All right, so that is our abbreviated USMNT year in review. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about them uh, as we get closer to the end of uh, of the year and the start of 2022. A bit more, maybe some questions, some awards to be given out. We'll see how it goes, Joe. But for now, we're going to take a break. Then we're going to be back to talk about Americans in action this weekend. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, Joe Lowry. Let's talk Americans in action. Where would you like to start? Shall we go to the Bundesliga? I feel like with the weekend review, we usually start in the Premier League, so I'm thinking we should go somewhere else to begin this conversation. I'm into it, Taylor. You All and right. me in the Bundesliga. Yeah. I want to I want to start with John Brooks, who was right. in action this weekend, Taylor. And we mentioned last week on this show that he hadn't been playing so much for Wolfsburg recently. And that was true then. He's back in the lineup for them in an unfortunate game for Wolfsburg. That's a group of 4 nothing yeah. loss to Bayern Munich. Brooks started and played that whole game. It was his first start in two weeks. Uh, one one little stat before I throw it over to you, Taylor, to, to let me know what you think about this performance or, or Brooks in general right now. Wolfsburg weren't exactly thriving without John Brooks in the lineup. They'd given up nine goals in their last 315 minutes without John Brooks. One to Mainz, three to Lille, two to Stuttgart, three to Köln. So you're thinking, okay, maybe John Brooks is going to come back in and stay the ship. The problem with that is it's against Bayern Munich and they gave up four goals with John Brooks in the lineup. Bayern was just better in this game, Taylor, from the clips that I watched. They were just better. It really is hard for me to fault John Brooks too much for almost anything that's going on with Wolfsburg right now. 
Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Uh, I looked more at his stats from this game than I did actual performance in the game because it was a 4-0 loss and I didn't want to make myself sad. What I did notice uh, from the uh, FopMob app, he had 70 total touches in this game and attempted 53 passes. So if each pass is a touch, then I'm going to say not a ton of time on the ball for John Brooks. A 5.8 match rating make, me, makes him the second lowest outfield player on the team. And I think that's to be expected when you lose 4-0 to Bayern. But it is a Bayern Munich team that uh, we would fully expect to win the Bundesliga that are pretty dominant and are uh, very well positioned to capitalize on any sort of inconsistency or just sort of vulnerability in Wolfsburg. And there's been plenty of that this season. The thing that I kind of found myself focusing on, Joe, was the continued reporting about uh, John Brooks being the quote-unquote problem child, about issues with Greg Berhalter and Berhalter not being impressed by his performances. And the biggest thing that I kind of had not realized until basically this morning is that John Brooks is out of contract at the end yep. of the season. Yep. And that rings alarm bells, raises red flags for me. For people who are relatively new to soccer or don't like quite know how the contract situation works. You can move if there's a transfer fee agreed. That's one way. You can move on a free transfer when you are out of contract, and you can begin negotiating for that move six months before you are due to be done with your deal, usually deals ending in June, and then uh, they begin in July, and that would be when you can sign for a new club. So John Brooks, as we approach January, will technically be free to start negotiating with other clubs. And so normally for his parent club, when we're talking about a long-tenured player who has been a regular performer for the first team and an important performer at that, you would assume they want to extend that deal to either keep him there or at the very least get some sort of transfer fee if and when another club comes calling. That Wolfsburg are sort of slowing down those contract conversations has me thinking that maybe they are now okay with him leaving on a free if it means sort of freeing up that space and getting somebody else in who will be more of a performer they need him to be. But that's just not where I thought we were with John Brooks at the start of the season. So it's just a strange couple of months that have led us to this point, maybe even a strange couple of weeks. Uh, but that was the thing that I found most disconcerting reading about John Brooks this past weekend. It's weird, and I don't have a lot else to add, to be honest, on Brooks. I think, I think though, Taylor, I'm right there with you. There's got to be some sort of contract element, some some sort of contract underlying element that's at play here with all the reporting, with some of the recent buzz. There's certainly an element of his on-field performances as well, but I think that's that's another factor, and it's hard to know how much to weight that factor, how much stock to put into it, because we're not behind the scenes and we don't have that information, but it's a, it's a little bit complicated right now with John Brooks. I, I maintain, just once again to reiterate, I said this last week, I think from a USMNT perspective, this is all going to be fine, and I think at times we may be overvalue, and, and I'm prone mm-hmm. to do this just as much as anyone else, we're, we overvalue club performances when when really it is that's that's a part of it but it is also yep. how they're doing in camp with the national team and how those performances look in front of Greg Berhalter that that are probably the most important thing so end of the day I'm not too concerned about all this but it is something to keep our eyes on but this is the same John Brooks who hasn't been called into camp. Right, and, right. And that's by, the issue. Yeah, and by all reporting, uh, is not impressing Greg Berhalter. So I think he needs something to change. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, Joe, uh, with the remaining Bundesliga players, I'm going to run through uh, a quick 
kind of summary of what they did. If you have something to say about any of these guys, just yell stop or yell, I have things to say, and then I will stop talking. <laughs> uh, but Tyler Adams came off the bench uh, in the seventh minute for Leipzig. He did not start, but Emil Forsberg uh, picked up an injury, so Adams came on, but a disappointing result for Leipzig. Although if you're Jesse Marsh, you at least have a moment to think, haha, it wasn't just me. There are other <laughs> things going on. Uh, Joe Scally goes 90 at left back against Hoffenheim. Stop. Chris Richards sitting on the bench. All right, Joe, you've got things to say about Joe Scally. Joe's talking about Joe. Let's make it happen. With Joe Scally right now, every week that passes, he's playing for for uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. He started every single one of their competitive fixtures this season. He started every single Bundesliga game in both. I believe it's been two of their DFB Pokal games, too. He's got more than 1,600 competitive minutes already this season as an 18-year-old, which just blows my mind. I am very curious to see how involved Joe Scally is going forward with the national team because he cemented himself as a lockdown starter either on the right or the left of Mönchengladbach's defense. I'm, I'm, I think maybe he should have been included earlier when we we're talking about players who could continue to benefit from a really strong next six to eight months because he, he, based on the level he's playing right now with his club, and I know I just said at times we overrate that, but he he should maybe, or, or at least he could be involved pretty heavily with the U.S. going forward. So I'm just impressed by what he continues to do as, as a teenager right now in the Bundesliga. Joe, uh, I'm sure that you do get angry from time to time, but I've never seen Joe angry. So I'm going to I'm going to assume that the angriest Joe can be is miffed. He, he Joe's Joe's slightly miffed. And then like like at the lower end of the uh frustration scale, you're just sort of like, "Ah, it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be okay." So if we did not see Joe Scally called in for the January qualifiers on a scale of, "Meh, it'll be fine." to I am miffed by this. Where are you, Joe Lowry? Are you a one? Or are you a ten? Are you somewhere in between? I'm a six. I'm trending right. towards miffed. It's not the end of the world, right? Because in a perfect world, mildly it's going to be bothered. death starting on one bothered. side. Yeah, mildly bothered, Taylor. Okay. That's exactly right. I think he brings value. It's. I feel about Joe Scally the same as I feel about Luca De La Torre in that I don't mm, think they're okay. starters for this team if everyone's fit. But if you don't bring them, it feels to me like you're sort of limiting your ability to win soccer games, at least in, in some hmm. slight senses. Yeah. So I'm not going to burn the house down if that doesn't happen, but I'll be I'll be mildly bothered, Taylor. I think that's what <laughs> I put. And then if there's no Luca De La Torre, does that go to, to full miff, to full 10 out of 10? <laughs> Together, if they're both not in, we'll put yeah. it at an 8. I don't okay. know what the, what adjectives that is, but yeah, that's where I've got them. I think if a 6 is mildly bothered, I think an 8 is somewhat frustrated. Yes, that, yes. There it is, always Nine. with a modifier in front of it. Nine is approaching miffed, and then ten is just fully miffed. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Uh, uh, elsewhere in Germany, we have Pellegrino Matarazzo's Stuttgart in the relegation zone after a 1-0 loss to Köln. And we have Gio Reyna still not back for, B- uh, for Borussia Mönchengladbach. Excuse me. Uh, Borussia Dortmund. Not Borussia Mönchengladbach. That would be bigger news. Uh, I... <laughs> Kind of like we've talked about how long he's been injured and about him returning to training. I forgot how long it has been since he played. Joe, do you know the last time he played a game of soccer? It was October, right? Or was it September? It was September. Oh, it was my September second, right. I believe. The USMT draw with El Salvador and woke up qualifying that nil-nil draw. He initially hurts his hamstring in that game for the yep. reporting I saw. It was then complicated by damage to tendons and nerves in his recovery. Doesn't seem like there have been any setbacks. It just seems like with that type of muscle injury, they are 
happy to take their time and maybe slowly bring him back. We have the, the winter break in the Bundesliga, so maybe when we come out of that one, they're giving him time to kind of build up the full fitness, and then we'll see Giorena back and playing regularly. That would be my hope. I really hope we don't see another injury as soon as he's back or even a further delay once we come out of that restart, because that would be warning warning bells, alarm bells to me, but maybe we've now seen that we have some depth for the USMNT if he can't go, but to go as many months as we have without Giorena playing is not my favorite thing. So let's get him back sometime in February, hopefully. Amen. I just miss it, right? I, yeah. I just miss watching Giorena play. It was fun getting to see him play a little bit deeper under Marco Rosa earlier in the season. We talked plenty about that months ago now. You're right, Taylor. It has been months Getting him back on the field is is important in this winter break that's coming up for the Bundesliga that they're entering in right now. Could be a good time for him to continue rehabbing. It will be a good time for him to continue rehabbing and getting up to full fitness. Hopefully, we do see him January, February, sometime early on. Hopefully, again, double hopefully, before the USMNT's next round of qualifiers at the end of January. That would be my hope. I'm not really holding my breath for that to happen, but I would certainly like that to be the case. All right. Well, that is uh, a quick summary of what happened in the Bundesliga in Serie A. We have Weston McKinney back in the lineup for Juve in a 2-0 win over Bologna. And we have both Gianluca Busio and Tanner Tespin starting for Venezia in a 1-1 draw with Sampdoria. Yeah, I've got stuff to say on this one, Taylor. Thanks for pausing there. I watched... I watched Tanner Tessman play in this game. I went back through and watched all of his clips. I, I, I was going to watch Busio too, but I ended up just focusing on Tessman in this one. And before I even get to how he played in this game, spoiler, I think he was pretty good. Tessman, statistically, at least in terms of his involvement with Venezia, has been a, a relatively key player for them recently. He's been involved in eight straight Serie A games. He started three of them. He's getting minutes as a 20-year-old right now in a way that I, I just wasn't sure he was going to. That's a positive sign for a Venezia team that are seven points clear of the relegation zone, which, again, I didn't expect. So lots of, of things that I wasn't prepared for happening in Venice right now, and I'm totally here for it. In this game, Tanner Tessman, he loses the ball in a tough situation after a Sampdoria throw-in early on, and it's in the very first minute, and that does play a part in, in, in Sampdoria's opening goal. And Venezia eventually claws back to get that 1-1 draw. The blame is not only on Testament in that sequence. There's a whole bunch of other factors there, but it is something to note. As the game progresses, though, it looks to me like he got a lot more comfortable on the ball. He had a really good first-touch pass to release uh, Venezia's left back in the eighth minute, had some really strong runs out of midfield, playing as one of those eights in their in their three-man midfield alongside Gianluca Busio in front of Ethan Ampadu. He had some great runs forward into the box and really stretching the the opposing back line. So generally positive signs from Tessman in that he's playing and getting consistent minutes and positive signs from him in this game. I left feeling pretty encouraged after I closed out Scout. Uh, two, two things and a peek behind the curtain so people can see how much uh, like trying to process everything in the moment can turn your brain to mush. Joe, did I say Venezia drew or beat Sampdoria? Taylor, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember. All I right. don't remember. Me neither. Me neither. But I suddenly <laughs> was like, oh, they won 2-0. I think because Juve beat Bologna 2-0. So I'm pretty sure I said 1-1. But if not, apologies. And Joe, thank you for correcting <laughs> me. But looking at the lineup for a second, as you said, Ethan Ampadu in there as well. What, from what you saw from Tanner Tessman and Gianluca Busio, where does that correspond to where we might see them for the USMNT? Yeah, that's a great question, Taylor. I think, so right now, at least with Venezia, they're both playing as eights, and Ampadu is the six. That's a really young midfield with Venezia. Ampadu, I believe, is 21, Busio 19, and Tessman 20. So it's a young group in that in the center of midfield for Venezia. I think Busio right now fits best as an eight with the national team. I don't know that he has the mobility that you would like to see as a six. 
or if he doesn't have the mobility, which I don't think he does, he doesn't have the real line-breaking passing that you want to compensate and to add value in place of that lack of mobility. With Tessman, he's still so raw right now that it's harder to say. If he was playing for the national team tomorrow, I'd prefer him as an eight. It's a little bit of a of a lower risk position relative to the six. You don't need to worry so much about him needing cover from the eights in front of him if he's playing the eight. So I'd rather see him a little bit more advanced, get him making those runs that we saw against Sampdoria and get him roaming around and, and causing havoc defensively winning the ball in the air. I'd have him at that eight spot right now. But who knows, a year from now, two years from now, six months from now, he might project a bit better as a six. How excited would you be if we started seeing him play as the number six in a three-man midfield for Venezia? Because I, I continue to say we have a lot of depth in midfield. There's a lot of exciting players, uh, young and old, in there, or in contention. But still, it's basically Tyler Adams and then like maybe Kellen Acosta, but maybe Kellen Acosta in a double pivot is the kind of best thing we can do to uh, find a way to replace Tyler Adams. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I'd be really, 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 really happy to see Tanner Tespin playing as a six uh, for club or for country or both. What about you, Joe? Is that something you'd like to see or are you happy to see him kind of develop where he is at present? I'm happy right now to just see him on the field because, again, I don't know that I was ready for that to happen. I wasn't expecting that to happen. But in terms of filling a need for the U.S., of course, yeah, you want someone, and and whether that's Tanner Tessman or someone else, to really be getting reps at a high level at the six. And so if that's Tessman with Venezia, there's not a direct stylistic overlap between really how they play and how the U.S. men's national team wants to play. But getting him reps in that spot is huge, right? I mean, in getting him opportunities to pass and to feel what it's like to be in that spot with a similar midfield construction around him, I'd be pretty thrilled to see that happen, Taylor. And to be honest, I don't think it's out of the question for him. All right, let's stay uh, on the continent for a couple more players. Let's talk about Serginho Dest for a moment, uh, who did not play for Barcelona. Joe, as you pointed out yesterday, a thing that I tend to overlook is that he is not playing, and maybe that's because of like tactical, uh, like uh, lack of familiarity with what Xavi wants to do, or maybe he just doesn't fit the manager's plans. But there is the injury component that should be mentioned. Uh, Xavi, speaking about Sergio Des, said his problem is physical; otherwise, he, we would have used him more. He has had severe low back pain. Now his adductors have overloaded. It's not a mental or football issue, but he is not well. He is not ready to play. It is a physical problem, nothing more. (laughs) Xavi, really making it clear that it's an injury and not anything to do with his disposition or personality or mindset. Yeah, Taylor, did you hear that it's it's a physical issue with Serginho Dex? I don't know if I don't know if you you picked up on that from the quote, but that's what I'm hearing from Xavi is that it's some sort of physical problem. It's not related to anything else, but physically he's unwell right now here's where my my conspiracy brain is too active when a person says like four different times in three sentences that it's just it's just an injury it's nothing else we promised we would play him please don't let his value go down it it does feel a little bit to me like maybe there's uh slightly too much protesting from chavi on that one Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, Taylor, I'm not going to say it's impossible. I don't know how likely it is, but I'm, I'm kind yeah. of aboard that conspiracy train. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens in January. We continue to see lots and lots of rumors linking lots and lots of players away from Barcelona. Dest is included in that conversation. Most recently, it was nailed on confirmed that he's going to Bayern Munich. That feels like maybe the Catalan press. Uh, printing a lot of headlines and who knows what they're based in, if they're based in anything at all. But it does seem like Barcelona will need to sell some players to bring in the players they want. Maybe Dest will be part of that. But for now, all we can say is he is definitely injured, according to his manager. 
Yep, definitely injured. And Taylor, after you, you didn't call me out, but you sort of quizzed me on the adductor yesterday. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, is, it, it is in the hip and thigh yeah. area. I'm not going to lie. I didn't do a lot more Googling than that, but I clicked on Google Images, got a general feel for it. Uh-huh. And I'm feeling pretty good about my medical knowledge right now. <laughs> to be fair, that was only because you correctly pointed out that he wasn't <laughs> playing due to injury, to which I just was tongue in cheek saying yes. that no oh, one yes. knows what an adductor it's is. True, and though. thus, it's we true. can't be sure. It's sim- <laughs> like I will say, we do know that when a, when a player says they have back pain, that is the most common I want a move injury because it can't really be detected via scan unless you have like a bulging disc or something like that. So just having low back pain and then a made up injury because the doctors aren't real has me has me wondering, Joe, it has me wondering. Uh, Fewer concerns about Yunus Musa plays a few minutes off the bench against Levante. Larger concerns about Matthew Hoppe who continues to not play. Uh, Joe, do you want him to stick around? Do you want him to get a move or do we just not know enough to know what's going on there? I think it's too early to clamor for a move for Matthew Hoppe. He was starting earlier on this year. I believe he was fit and ready around Thanksgiving. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on with him right now. I tried doing some reading. I read uh, a weekend recap from Soccer America and they had him as. Uh, in, in the category of did not dress dash injured, but I was looking for injury reports and maybe you found them, Taylor. I couldn't. So I don't, I don't fully know what's going on with Hoppy right now. All of that said, and, and all the confusion still accounted for, I think Mallorca could be a good spot for him in terms of level. He's only been there a few months. He's still, from what I've read, having some trouble adjusting culturally and in terms of the language. So I think this is a situation where you want to give it some time. Have you read anything more about Hoppy or, or do you share my sentiment, Taylor? Where are you at on this? Uh, I think I think I would say I don't know enough either way. So for me to say he definitely needs to move or he definitely needs to stay would be disingenuous at best. I will just say that maybe that's one that we can try to keep an eye on and learn yeah. more about over the next com- couple weeks and see if there is more of a story there. If it is just recovering from injury, others are ahead of him. He's got him play himself into contention, whatever it might be. But maybe that's one that we can pay attention to because that was a move that I was excited about that I thought would go well. And I'm, I'm going to say uh, right now it's a did not finish grade. It's not an F. It's not an A. It's a did not finish. It's an incomplete. We'll see how it plays out over the next six months. Joe, I think that about covers Spain. We've got England, France, and a few other countries still to get to. First, one more break to hear from today's sponsors. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Continuing to talk about Americans in action this past weekend. We are going to the island. Let's talk the, the what does Ryan call it? The disease island? Plague, Plague island. island. Plague island. <laughs> Which... Is a not great way to introduce this conversation because Christian Pulisic playing uh, as a nine for Chelsea and a very angry Thomas Tuchel in charge of that Chelsea team wanted the game postponed due to Chelsea's uh, COVID uh, positive test rate. But the game not postponed Chelsea in the end with a nil-nil draw with Christian Pulisic playing as a nine. It seems like most of the coverage has been about Tuchel being frustrated and being kind of forced into experimentation. Joe. You watched more of this game. What did you make of Christian Pulisic's on-field performance? Okay, so first of all, Chelsea are in a bit of a rut right now. They're dealing mm-hmm. with all of those positive COVID tests that you mentioned, Taylor. In, in, in terms of on-field stuff, they're struggling to create chances right now. The team has regressed under Tuchel relative to where they've been in the past. So there is that overarching struggle right now with this Chelsea team. Looking at Christian Pulisic in particular, he's not a nine, right? Not naturally. He doesn't have that background. He's much more of a wide attacker. We know that. And I think a lot of listeners at this point know that. But he has played the nine a couple of times in the past, even a couple other times this season for Chelsea. He played it against Everton uh, some the week before, some in the, the previous Premier League game. And he obviously did it against Wolves. And he did a lot of drifting out to the left half space. He did some linking. He snuck in behind a few times. Had a really great run into the box and, and a shot that came after that run in the 78th minute that was saved. That was maybe his best sequence of the game. But in general, not a whole lot to write home about from Pulisic or from Chelsea, which again, given their overall struggles, is it's not all that surprising to me. Were they changing the way they preferred to attack or were they sort of doing the usual thing except instead of having Lukaku or Timo Werner there, they had Christian Pulisic? Or did you see them doing anything different to try to kind of play off of Christian Pulisic's uh, more specific skill set? No, it was a lot of similar things. And, and that makes sense, right? When you think about how set in his ways Tuchel is and how set in, in their ways a lot of top managers are, one player being out or one player having to fill in at one spot versus another isn't oftentimes an excuse to overhaul what we're going to see or really even to vary it all that much. There were little differences, right? Like I mentioned, Pulisic drifting out to one side. Lukaku tends, at least when I've watched him in the past, to drift to the right. And Werner drifts to the left. Pulisic then fell in more to that Werner category and drifted to the left. Having a different profile at the nine, like Christian Pulisic, who's much more of a dribbler than he is anything else, having him in that nine spot does necessitate some changes from the player 
players around him, right? So it was Mason Mount and uh, Hakeem Ziyech on, on either side of Christian Pulisic in this game. They had to sort of change a little bit of how they were moving and how they worked together as a front three. But clearly, when you when you watch this game and see the lack of chances that Chelsea created, they weren't all that effective in trying to vary those things in basically what amounted to being on the fly in this game. Mm-hmm. And, and if... Uh listeners are concerned, as I was, that Pulisic is only getting these opportunities when there are a ton of injuries. It's worth noting that it could definitely be worse because we have N'Golo Kante in this game returning from injury. We have uh, Chaloba starting alongside Kante, which meant we had Ross Barkley and Saul on the bench, Kovacic also on the bench. So it seems like there are still players that like maybe could have gotten minutes, but right now are not in Thomas Tuchel's Estimation, Saul does come on for the second half, but Ross Barkley remains on the bench. So it is not as though Pulisic is only there if things go wrong. It does feel like he is still part of the conversation. It's just there are many other things that Chelsea need to figure out. He is just one of those things as opposed to the thing. Yep, absolutely, Taylor. That's really well said. It's good that Christian Pulisic is getting these minutes, especially now that he's back or it appears that he's back to full fitness, right? Let's not forget that he was recovering from an injury not so long ago. And so now he's got three starts in December. He's got a couple of appearances off the bench. He is a regular player, granted, in this weird time for Chelsea with positive COVID tests, blah, blah, blah. He is getting regular minutes, and that's a good thing as long as he's staying healthy, which I think is the most important thing. So overall, yeah, a weird game for him, a weird game for Chelsea, but good signs in general with him rehabbing from that injury and and really getting back into the fold. All right. Over in France, we had uh, Conrad De La Fuente starting playing 58 minutes in a Coup de France uh, game for Marseille. But Joe, I want to talk about Timothy Weah for a second. Injured, missed Lille's uh, Coup de France game. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe it is coupe <laughs> when you add a vowel on the end. It's probably coupe because I think a coup in France is a very different thing. That's true. Uh, That's true. But Wea has uh, a thigh injury as well. Lots of hamstring quad issues for the USMNT at present. Uh, his manager said it was an injury that is not trivial. So another manager coming out and saying it's definitely an injury. Uh, Wea is out until uh, early to mid-January, according to the reporting that I saw. Which has me wondering, Joe, if if we think he's going to be in that January camp for the USMNT, I feel like he is probably not. And given that we have seen his season, uh, season's past cut short due to injury, especially muscle injuries, if he's not 100% fit in early January or mid-January, I don't think he should be called in. I think it's better to leave him at home and let him continue to kind of come back slowly so we have a fully fit Timothy Weah down the road as opposed to a somewhat fit Timothy Weah for these games and then an injured Timothy Weah coming out of World Cup qualifiers. So worth noting from my end that uh, Weah is injured but very well could miss those January qualifiers. It's possible, right? We just don't have enough information to know for sure. I do want to make a distinction here quickly, Taylor. That January camp that the U.S. is going to have in, I think, a week or two into January, the beginning of that camp will be for mostly domestic-based players, just like normal January camps are. Then my understanding from what I've read is that Baralter is going to send a bunch of those guys home. They're going to go back and they'll get integrated into preseason with their clubs, all that good stuff. Some of those players from the initial stages of that camp will remain. And then the European, a lot of the top players are going to come in and join that camp as it's closing right into that first uh, January World Cup qualifier on the 27th. So depending on the timing of Wei's injury, depending on his rehab, it could make great sense for him to be involved and there could be a lot of confidence there. Or it could be a situation where, Taylor, to your point, it's best to leave him 
him in France, let him fully rehab and recover. So I don't know what path will end up being the wiser one, but I, I wouldn't be really surprised to see it go either way. One more wrinkle, Taylor, I want to throw on this whole discussion. I don't know if you read this, but I read a report from AS, a Spanish uh, paper, that Sevilla are apparently interested in Tim Weah given some of their injuries in the forward line. I'd never read anything about that. I don't know that I think it's a great idea, but that's a pretty sizable club in for Tim Weah. It would probably be the biggest club that he's played at outside of Okay, I, actually, Tim Way has played at some big clubs. I'm not going to lie. I was going to say outside of PSG, yeah. Yeah. but Celtic is a really big club mm-hmm. in that region. It would be the highest level club in terms of on-field performance on a consistent basis for Tim Way, where he could conceivably get minutes, I think, outside of PSG. So that could be an interesting wrinkle to this upcoming next month. I don't know how likely it is, but just something to note. Yeah, if it were that he was starting every single game and playing every single minute for Lille and then was potentially moving to a Sevilla side where he's going to get... 10 to 15 minutes at best a game, I would have more concern. But with Sevilla, the way they are consistently good, consistently very good in the Europa League, but just seem like they do sort of make smart acquisitions and get the best out of players, and that he is like sort of inconsistent when it comes to his on-field performances with Lille in terms of the minutes he's getting, I wouldn't hate that move. It doesn't mean he would start right away. It probably means he would well, – it definitely means he would have to earn his spot, but it means that we'd get more cameo appearances, I think, from him at least early on. But I still think long-term that could be very good for his career. So if he stays with Lille, I'll be happy. If he moves to Sevilla, that would be terrific. Mostly I just hope we see him at the end of January for the U.S., but I think a yeah. lot of that will depend on on if he's able to get back to full fitness by mid January or so, because you want him to have at least a couple performances to show that, okay, yes, he can kind of hold up to the rigors of playing three World Cup qualifiers in relatively short order. Uh, Joe, anything else from Timothy Weah or anybody else in France? No, let's just get that thigh back to full working capacity. And just so everyone's on the same page, remember, the thigh is close to the adductor. Okay, that's all I have to say. Joe knows science. Uh, A few (laughs) more other players uh, to mention before we call this Americans in Action Weekend Reviewed. Joe, Jordan Pifuk started and scored four goals for Young Boys. Um, I watched... Uh, pretty much every touch he had in this game, uh, including all four goals. One was a penalty, uh, and then there are some some clever finishes, two very good headers. The thing that I very much enjoyed from what I saw of him was the aggressiveness in how he pressed and how he was willing to run people down, be, uh, even if it was 20, 30, 40 yards. He would like like chase the ball back to the goalkeeper and then chase it back out wide to the fullback and and did a decent enough job cutting off those angles. I felt like sometimes when he was not aggressively pressing, he took up positions that weren't great and didn't cut out obvious passes. So that was one slight air deficiency I saw in his game. The pressing was good, but the positioning at times less good. The thing I really liked was his willingness to link up play. There's a lot of long balls flicked on, long balls brought down. But there's at least two or three that are driven into his feet, and he has a defender, like in the at least in the immediate vicinity of his back, and is able to still turn and go at the defense. And I liked the aggressiveness in the way he was turning and going at the defense, the way he was crashing goal and winning headers and scoring goals, and then obviously uh, a calm finish for the first one, a good penalty for the third, I believe. So I I really liked this one from Peacock, and it is against like Swiss opposition. It's not as though he's scoring four goals in the Premier League and suddenly uh, heads are turning. 
But I think this goes back to a conversation we were having about Americans who need to have sort of the strongest next six to eight months, a lot of them relating to that number nine spot, Joe. And I think with these types of shows for you and me, we oftentimes end up getting really excited about players and then trying to calm down that enthusiasm. Because when you're watching Luca De La Torre play in midfield and you see like this and this and this, you start to build the argument of why he could be perfect, why he is the thing the U.S. midfield needs. And watching PFUC at a time when we don't have a ton of like proven goal scorers, for him to get four in a game, I did really quickly find myself thinking like, oh yeah, he should be back in that conversation. He's one that we've sort of left out of those talks when we go over our number nine depth chart. And all of that is my preamble to asking you, Joe, like how you would like to see the number nine position sort of develop for the U.S. over the next, like like we said, a few months. Do you want it to be the same sort of names that we've seen in like mostly Ricardo Pepe or maybe Jesse Zardes, uh, maybe Josh Sargent in there, we'll see. But like, do you want to see like Greg Berhalter stick with the names that we have seen and sort of keep developing them and see how they fit in? Or would you like to see more experimentation, more names brought into camp and see who can sort of emerge from that scrap? I like the idea of bringing in someone who's not Jossie Zardes or Ricardo Pepe for the specific reason of of having someone like PFOC who just has a different skill set, right? PFOC's number one thing, Taylor, you mentioned defensively, a lot of the good work he was doing running, some of the challenges there as well. But but the biggest thing that you notice when you watch PFOC with the national team or with, with young boys is his aerial ability, right? Yeah. Two goals in this game, two of the four goals he scores come from him just dunking on a Lugano defender, yeah. right? That's that's what he does. He's a big dude. He can link play some, and he does that in, in, in the build-up to the fourth goal. He can do that stuff, and you mentioned some of those sequences, but really what he does is he dunks on people when you give them the chance to do that in a way that Jossi Zardes and Ricardo Pepe and Josh Sargent and even Daryl DK just don't. So th- there are times when maybe from a game plan perspective, Greg Berhalter doesn't need or want that type of number nine based off of how he plays. And In this next window, looking at it, you've got three games coming up January, February. You've got USA versus El Salvador at home. You've got Canada against the US in Canada. And then the USA against Honduras at home again. And all of those games are going to be very, very cold up in the the eastern, north, midwestern portion of the mm-hmm. United States and then in Canada too. So in those games, depending on how much the, the weather really plays a part, you might not need a PFOC. You might want to really commit to playing with the ball on the ground and breaking lines and having Pepe link or having Zardes link and then break into the box. So it, it depends partially on the opponents here, Taylor, as to how you want to really allocate different players into that nine depth chart. But even if PFOC isn't an every game kind of guy for the U.S., and I don't think he will be, even if he isn't an every World Cup qualifying or international window guy for the U.S., Having some variance in skill sets as a nine, I think, is really helpful within that depth chart as a whole. So I don't really know that that answers your question, but PFOC, nah, for his sake, being different, does. being just literally a different player, brings value and gives him a dimension that that really just no none of these other nines have right now. I think I think it answers my question about as good as you could, given how expansive the question was, and it took a little bit of time to get the question out. But I would also say because it's a it's a complex topic, and it's one that I don't really have a good answer to. The number nine spot is one that we are all very excited to to see whomever gets that start, and we want to see them scoring goals. But I like don't want to just be like it's Ricardo Pepe. That's it. That's who's starting there. Uh, again, maybe I would feel differently if we'd seen a few more goals from him for the national team over the last couple months. But 
as things stand, I don't think it makes sense to just say, nope, this is the depth chart and we're going to keep developing those players. But I also don't think it makes sense to kind of keep chopping and changing based on whatever flavor of the week has scored a goal or two goals or four goals. I think there needs to be a balance, but I do want to see the U.S. continue to bring in people who who deserve it and have played themselves into contention. And it's not just that it's four goals and therefore he's in there. It's just looking at what we've already talked about, Joe, and especially that aerial ability, knowing the United States against bunkered opponents can sometimes get a little bit overly elaborate or just a little bit cautious or a little bit too clever in the way they want to get the ball in the box. Putting Pivak in there is that aerial threat that we know, like I could see him being brought in to kind of play alongside Ricardo Pepe. If it's nil-nil against a bunkered opponent, we just want to start banging in some balls and see what happens. That's what Young Boys did this weekend, and that's where those first two goals definitely came from. So I wouldn't mind seeing him called in to, to the U.S. camp as long as we continue to see him performing somewhat consistently for Young Boys. But that goes for other strikers as well, and really that goes for a lot of the team. There are a few players who I think of as, regardless of whatever they're doing for their club, they're in the USMNT for sure. Uh, but I don't think we have any of those players playing as a striker for the U.S. So I think the the more the merrier for now, but I would like to see that depth chart sort of shored up and solidified in the medium-term future. Man, it would sure be nice, right? And if PFOX yeah. starts scoring four goals every game for club and country, I think we can call easier. this whole thing yeah. done. We can just put a nice <laughs> little bow on that nine spot. <laughs> Good call, Joe. That's why, that's why you get paid the big, bu- big bucks. That's that expert <laughs> analysis. Uh, a few more names. Luca De La Torre did Luca De La Torre things uh, for Heracles in a 4-2 win over Groningen. Joe, again, I'm going to run through them. You say stop when you got something here. Richie Ledesma on the bench for PSV. That is a positive step. We would love to see him making positive steps on the actual field, but being on the bench is pretty great. Uh, Mark McKenzie started for Genk over in Belgium. And Reggie Cannon, the aforementioned, hey, starting oh. for Boavista. Yes, I've got things on Reggie Cannon. I watched right. a good chunk of this game, and we've talked about it in the past, Taylor, plenty of times about how weird this whole Reggie Cannon situation has been. Yeah. It's really weird for pretty much everyone involved. I'm not sure FC Dallas has even been paid by Boavista. I'm not sure what what the status of that payment oh, yeah. is. But there's yeah, so many yeah. layers to this. We talked about that before, so people can go back and listen there. But Reggie Cannon is now back and is really getting minutes for Boavista. Usually he plays right back or right wing back. This game was a little bit different, though. He played as a right-sided center back in a back three, which, Taylor, I'm kind of into. I'm not going to lie. I don't don't think he's there yet. And after having watched this game, I don't think he's there yet with his skill set. It's not a perfect fit. But like we talked earlier with Tessman, getting reps at the six and feeling out that spot, that could be be really valuable, valuable for him. I think Cannon getting minutes as a right-sided center back could be really valuable for him, too. I think he could grow into that role. He's clearly a smart guy. We know that on and off the field. He sees space well. He's comfortable on the dribble. And so in that regard, he fits the modern center back mold of someone who can drive by you with the ball at their feet. That's becoming basically an an essential part of being a modern center back, especially in a three. So we can do that bit. I think he's got some underrated passing quality that we just don't see because he's usually a little bit wider. He's got some some real, real skill when it comes to defensive positioning. I think this could be a spot where he really succeeds going forward. Again, I don't think all the pieces are quite there yet. Yeah. But a thousand minutes from now as a right-sided center back, which who knows how likely that is or, or not. Maybe he'll just be put back out wide again next week. But I, I was encouraged and somewhat excited by this. It could just be me wanting to see every single player become a center yeah. back one day. But uh, I, I was at least thinking that this was worth bringing up because I'd never seen Reggie Cannon play as a right-sided center back before. 
How did that work for him when it came to aerial challenges that you saw? Because that would seem to be the obvious deficiency there. You do tend to have your bigger players playing as your center backs. So how did he sort of conduct himself when it came to aerial challenges? Or did he conduct himself well by not getting involved in those? Yeah, there weren't a ton of really notable situations in that regard. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a, a strong suit for him, though, right now, Taylor. Based yeah. off of this game and based off of what I've seen before, he's 5'11". He's he's big enough to do that job, but he's not this monster defensive presence, nor will he ever be. That's a sticking point in this. That's a, that's a hard part about having him in that spot. But again, I want to see more reps here because... I don't know if you feel the same way, Taylor. I kind of feel like even though Reggie Cannon's not an old guy, right? He's he's in his low 20s. Shoot, I can't remember exactly how old he is right now off the top of my head. He's 23. Yeah, he's 23. Okay. So he's not old, but I kind of feel like he's hit his ceiling as a as a right back. And and that's not to say he can't, he can't go and find a better club because I think he will. And Boavish is unstable in a, you know, a thousand different ways. But I don't know that we're going to see a ton of real progress from him in terms of developing as a right back. I think there could be an opportunity here for him to just do something different and to maybe find a position where he has a higher ceiling and could present himself as a more valuable player for club and country. So maybe this is pie in the sky stuff, and maybe I should be thinking more about the aerial deficiencies and more about just the challenges that come with transferring to that role, but I can't help but be a bit curious about this. I think you should uh, concern yourself with whatever you want to concern yourself with, Joe. (laughs) What I am concerned about, or at least uh, I should say happy about, is that, uh, as you mentioned, this is against uh, Moirense in the Portuguese league. And Bovista have moved to three at the back uh, for the last few games. But Reggie Cannon was only involved uh, in uh, like their third most recent game against Sporting after, I think, an, an injury and a red card and he comes in. But he starts in their cup game against Sporting Braga, who are uh, ahead of Bovista in the table. But Bovista win that one five to one, and that's Reggie Cannon's first start as a right center back. Then they get the win in the league, so two wins with Cannon in there as a center back means that he should be the starting center back for the Portuguese national team, if not the U.S. men's national team. That's my yep. takeaway from this. That that completely tracks with me, Taylor. Yep. I'm all aboard that. That line totally possible. Totally possible. <laughs> Uh, Joe, I think on that ridiculous note, we've talked about a lot of Americans, uh, including uh, people involved in the expansion draft, Sebastian Legette, the U.S. men's national team, and then a bunch of players in action this past weekend. Joe, anything else from you before we bring this one to a close? I don't think so, Taylor. We covered ground today, man. Yeah, I might we need to take a nap after this whole thing. Yeah, buddy. We did. We, we got our frequent Flyer Meyer miles virtually, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but for now, Joe, uh, we will be back uh, for one more show this week. It is a holiday-centric episode. It should feature all four of us. Uh, I am getting my booster tomorrow, so hopefully I will be fully fit in time for that <laughs> one. We'll have another 101 episode out as well. Then we're going to take a break for the holidays. We'll be back uh, next week with three more shows and then back to our regular schedule after that. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for taking all the time following your booster shot. You're back to full fitness and ready to go and starting as our number nine, and it worked out well. Oh, thank you, Taylor. You'll be fine after tomorrow. Take a nice three-hour long nap. That's what I did. Uh, Just sit on the couch, eat some food. You'll be good. Beautiful listeners. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon.